Thanks for tuning in to All Car Radio. If you're looking for our latest car leasing deals, please skip to minute 51 and 5 seconds. Otherwise, enjoy the episode. Thank you. Welcome to the first proper episode of All Car Radio, the All Car Leasing podcast. Today we're going to do a bit of a deep dive to find a little bit about us as a team and a relationship with cars. I am your host, as usual, Ronnie, and with me today I've got Richard and Chris. Hello. Hi. Where better to start, really, than by just having a quick chat about what we are currently driving. Uh, Chris, do you want to start off? Yeah, sure. So, currently I drive a Hyundai i30N. I've had it for about two months now, and it's in the poster boy colour, which is performance blue. I like that colour, With yeah. uh, the red sort of pinstripe on the side, similar to what you get in like a Golf GTI, for instance. Do you know what, Mike? I've got a question for you here, and I think a lot of people who, who might be listening will be interested, is what do you what do you make of it? Like, what, what do you think of the car, considering, obviously, when people are thinking of hot hatches... It's Fiesta ST, Focus ST, Golf GTI and all the rest of it. The Hyundai i30N is quite a new player in a pretty established market. So what do you think? What's your review? It's great. It's definitely a contender. The biggest reason I went for it was that niche factor. Because as you said, you see so many Focus STs and stuff and GTIs, they're all the standard. Mm. Uh, I like to have something a little bit different. And to be honest with you, I think the looks are really out there as well. Especially it's their first attempt at a hot mm. hatch, so... I'd say they've done pretty well, to be honest with you. And little features like the active exhaust and like a proper electronic LSD just separate it completely from the others. So did you choose the i30N pretty much because you wanted a car of that kind of performance, but you didn't want to have, you know, just yet another mainstream sort of performance vehicle? Yeah, but I was mainly shopping for that sort of performance badge because I was originally choosing between a Golf GTD and this i30N. Obviously, one's petrol, one's diesel. Mm. But the major difference was car insurance for the two. So the i30 is actually ridiculously low on car insurance at the moment, considering I'm a younger driver mm. without a hefty no, like, no claims bonus racked up. So it was great for me to take advantage of it for the same price as a Golf GTD would have cost me. Yeah, I mean... I definitely like the i30M because of its niche factor, but also the, the colour that you've got in it. What was the colour called again? Uh, performance Blue. Performance Blue. It just, it really stands out. And I think, you know, when you're on the road, especially you know, commuting to work and stuff like that, the cars that you don't normally see are the ones that get your attention. Mm. Like the new Alpha Saloon, for example. You, when you see loads of 3 Series and drive past you, and then all of a sudden there's an Alpha refreshing to see a jury every once in a while considering there's so many sort of box standard German exec saloons yeah people probably would love an i30N but it's the fact that they're waiting for people like you to get it first so that you can come back and say yeah it is a good car but it's not when something's that niche and that new it's almost a risk isn't it yeah, you no, don't no know what you're going to get first yeah no yeah. one wants to be first and then for it to turn out to have uh, absolutely tanked reviews and then suddenly you're left with an unpopular car, and everyone likes, everyone's like, oh, glad I didn't make that decision. So do you love it? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, quite a bit of departure from your previous car, the, the Golf. Yeah, big step up from sort of a 1.6 diesel. It was also a step going back from an automatic to a manual. Mm. All right, uh, let's move on. Uh, Richard, what do you currently drive? I currently drive a Renault Clio Mark III diesel in Monaco Blue. <laughs> it's a very boring, very run-in-the-mill car, but it serves its purpose, which is getting me back into to work. So why, why did you choose that one and not something else? I didn't really have much choice shopping around for something so cheap, and I bought it outright, and I've used it ever since. It could be coming towards the end of its life. Do you love it? 
I don't know. It, it serves a purpose. It simply gets me from A to B. But apart from that, I try to keep it clean and hopefully it will get through its next MOT and then I can consider selling it or just scrapping it, I think. It's definitely got character, but I know the MPG you get out of it is incredibly high. You fill up once a month, don't you, as well? I think I'm envious of that considering I'm filling up once a week now, although I can't really complain about fuel costs. Because I knew what I was getting into. Mm. Yeah, a combination of my sort of steady driving and the fact that it's a diesel, it seems to be perfectly placed for my commute to work and the, the flowing traffic. But I certainly notice when I'm driving it around town that it's chewing on its MPG figure and I certainly don't like the cost of diesel at the moment. But I can only see it going one way, and as the car gets older, I'm sure it'll get less economical. Certainly, it doesn't. The Mark Three was the new. world car of the year or European car of the year, wasn't it? I I'm think. not too sure. I know that Renault was winning some awards around that time. Hmm. Uh, I suppose I'll I'll, I'll finish, and uh, so I currently drive sort of two cars at the moment. The first car is uh, the previous generation Fiesta ST Line EcoBoost 140. I got it because at the time I worked somewhere where my commute was less than 10 minutes. Now it's a lot more than 10 minutes and I am regretting it, but I'm stuck with it until November. I do enjoy the car, but maybe similar to Chris, it's not practical. But it, to be honest, it is fun to drive. And I do like the way it looks, to be honest. Mm. Uh, and the other car is a Golf Mark 7.5, one before TSI. Got this because I've got a six-month baby now, but I got it when we had a baby on the way. Because obviously the Fiesta was not practical for babies. The Golf, it's a lease. I practice where I preach. It came across my lap just at the right time. Snapped it up. First German car I've ever had. Possibly one of the best cars I've ever had. Just before WLTP as well, wasn't it? Yes, it's a bit boring. The economy's okay. But to be honest with you, I love it. One of the best cars you, you can get. But that, that's a Golf, isn't it? Boring, but does the job. That's our current cars out the way. My, my last question for this section is, any thoughts on what you'd like next? Any cars that you, if the deal came right in front of you now, you'd snap it up? To be honest, I don't really want to think about it for another three years. However, I would like an M140i or, to be honest with you, at the end of sort of three, four years when my agreement's over, I might be looking to get a mortgage, so I might have to take a step downwards instead, so I'm not too sure what to settle for at the moment. Richard? My next car is most likely going to be another cheap deal, I imagine. My current wants, if you like, for a car is something comfy, something perhaps with a more modern feel, more modern design, and certainly a much more modern cockpit with tech. What about a particular type of body style that you'd value over any of the others? My personal favourite is probably to go for another five-door hatchback. I mm. would rather stay away from anything as big as an SUV or, or a full-size saloon simply because I don't have anywhere to park something of that size, so mm. perhaps something closer to a crossover just to lift me up off the ground, but I'm happy in hatchbacks. Um, and For me, I suppose, my realistic dream car right now is, as you all know is a Skoda Octavia VRS mm. I am a sucker for the understated yeah there's a, there's a certain it's not aggressive it's classy and I think a Skoda sort of gives the impression that if you drive a Skoda you seem to know what you're talking about mm. like you you know cars quite well and I'd like yeah and I find like well a Skoda Octavia VRS is essentially a Golf GTI or a GTD depending on the, on the feel I'm after but in a five door almost saloony thing and I think it's price of the VRS, isn't it right that it's the most affordable hot hatch on the market or something like that? It's not the cheapest, but the best value for money anyway. So, 
the VRS is something that I'm looking to possibly get next, but again, the Fiesta doesn't go back to November, so I'm not in any rush. Some people are into cars big time, and I probably would say that I'm not one of those people. So, in this section, I just wanted to ask you, what's your earliest memory of like a car or a, or a road trip or, or anything to do with sort of car culture that you can remember? None of my family, in fact, are really into cars at all. So, in terms of like going shopping for a car, it's not something I would ever, as a kid, been there to experience with my parents. I think my earliest memories from cars actually come from the likes of the Fast and Furious and you know old Need for Speed games, things like that, uh, where I realised, oh, there's an actual world out here of yeah. cars and a culture behind it. So car culture is something that you're into quite a lot? Then. Yeah, not to the extent that I'd go to car shows and things like that, but I do enjoy cars in general. Well, I suppose the i30N is a bit of a, a niche car that I suppose only people that are really into car culture would, yeah, would you'd consider, probably I suppose. Yeah, some degree of a car enthusiast to buy that kind of car, especially knowing badge snobbery behind the Hyundai brand. So now that you're into cars and you obviously you work at All Car Leasing now, are your parents more interested in cars now? Have you helped them find cars that they wouldn't have if it wasn't for you? So what I'm trying to say is, you know, you grew up and you, your parents weren't into to cars much. Has that changed now or is it still just your thing? They're still not into cars, although I keep them sort of more updated on, say, and maybe the new model of their current car has just been released. Uh, for instance, when the new Yaris came out, my dad uh, was interested to look at that because he'd just got rid of a Yaris for uh, the Corolla. Mm. Which is which is now back. What about you, Richard? Well, my first experience, if you like, of, of a car and, and the family being around a car was my parents' Vauxhall Albany. They <laughs> bought it second-hand and... It was incredibly niche until about five years ago. There were only three registered as running in the UK. And having checked this morning, there's currently only one that is considered sawn and off the road. The Vauxhall Albany really stands out to me because we were a fairly large family and it seated seven of us. My mum decided to install a racing harness seatbelt in the rear because she had four children and she didn't like the the news that was around at the time of children slipping out of lap-only seatbelts that were very common. And we used to sleep in it quite often whilst travelling on long journeys to places like the New Forest down south in England. Hmm. For my part, I suppose... My family, I'm big into cars. My dad was a, a little bit when he was younger, but I think that seemed to die down a bit after I came along and my brother came along. Uh, but he, he was mostly into his bikes. And to be honest with you, my earliest memory of a, of a car is going camping uh, with the family, I can't remember where, in a Ford Escort Mark II. And I, I suppose the reason why that's stuck in my memory is because probably what my first car journey of a, of a decent uh, distance. And we didn't do many uh, car journeys growing up, to, to be honest with you. Quite, we were quite homebirds, our family, when, you know, when I used to live in Anglesey. So, only other memories that I can remember is always the journey and never the, the cars themselves. So, I always remember for, uh, like sleeping in the back of the car in the night, uh, like on a deal car, just staring up and passing the lights. But cars themselves haven't really stuck in my memory. It's always been about the journey. So, that's why I'm, I find myself as an adult now quite fond of doing long journeys on my, uh, by myself, I suppose because it just reminds me of happy memories uh, as a child. So, moving on, but staying on the subject of history, uh, staying with you again, Chris, tell me about your vehicle history from the first car. You know, what cars did you have leading up to 
the answer at the end. So originally I learned to drive in a Mini Cooper, which I'm not sure on the engine size, but it was a diesel. And then as soon as I passed my test, I was insured on my mum's Igo, because insurance was quite high at the time. Mm. Eventually, my first official car was a Toyota Yaris, uh, which was a 1.3 petrol. And then about two, three years into owning it, I ended up writing that off. Actually, on the way to work here in the early days, swapped that out for a Golf. It was the first automatic car I had that. It was a 1.6 diesel. And then here I am now with the i30N. All right, so it didn't take you that long to go from first car type of car to a performance car. It's quite a leap in a short space of time. Yeah, sort of maybe four years in total timeline. What's your favourite car? Uh, Obviously, by asking that question, I'm not saying which is the best car. Because, you know, the newest and the most expensive tends to be that. But what's your favourite? Like, what was the car that really made you happy the most the first time you got it? I'd say the Golf, actually. It made things so easy to drive. This is excluding before the i30, because I think that's the outright winner out of all of them. The Golf made driving a lot easier for me, certainly when I was not as experienced. Having an automatic was a little bit boring. But I found that I could concentrate on the road a bit more, which in turn made me a better driver for when I went back to a manual. Yeah, I was a little bit janky with the Yaris as well. It wasn't very powerful, so I was finding that I was giving it quite too much revs to change gear and I'd get that sort of clunk. Yeah. Made me feel like I wasn't a very good driver. I probably wasn't back then, to be fair. Not that I am now, but... <laughs> Richard? Well, my first vehicle wasn't a car. It was a jingling spy 250 which is a street style quad bike in blue and i got it brand new so it only had 16 miles on the clock when i first got it and then i sold it six months on heading towards autumn really and i swapped it for something that was a little more robust sorry to interrupt interrupt. why did you sell it i sold it because it was fit for purpose but it struggled to reach more than 50 miles an hour and part of my commute was down a dual carriageway at 70 Mm. and I often found that I was being forced out of the way by other vehicles in the other lane. So a bit of a burden really so you had to to swap it not because you wanted to but you you had to. Well I didn't have to but I felt for my safety a bit like when you see a moped travelling down a dual carriageway and they're stuck at 30. Um, You I always give them plenty of room so that we can all get home safely, but I felt like by holding up traffic, it was only a matter of time before someone didn't judge my speed correctly, and I was looking for uh, an accident, I suppose. So I then went to another quad bike. This time it was a a Quadzilla XLC 300. That was a 349cc engine, and that, (laughs) that allowed me to do 0 to 30, 0 to 40 speeds, very similar to motorbikes and I had a lot of fun on that. It got me back into to work through winter and it was only after a small road accident that wasn't my fault that uh, it was suggested by my family that I should get a car instead because there's no substitute for metal and most of the quad bike was plastic, certainly all the body panels were. So from there I was almost forced into a Chevrolet Matisse S. What does the S stand for? I think it stands for standard or something along those lines. Super? It certainly wasn't super, (laughs) no. The Chevrolet Matisse had many issues but it it was a decade old car by the time I got it. So it allowed me to keep driving but apart from being fairly cheap and easy to work on it was not much of a car so eventually I sold that and that's when I bought the Renault Clio. 
I've actually had the privilege of riding in your Matiz, haven't I? Richard, around the country lanes. I think it's still the scariest car I've ever been in. Yes, it had somewhat of a body roll to it. Being it's very... quite narrow, isn't it? The body's a bit narrow. The wheels are quite small, close together. Mm. Yes, we once identified that the spare tyre on the Volkswagen Polos that we had here at the office were actually wider than the standard tyres on the Chevrolet Matiz, as well as being bigger. (laughs) And being a a fairly tall car to allow anyone over 5'8 to actually drive it, whilst also being very narrow so that if you were sat in the front seat and went for first gear and you could stroke the other person's (laughs) leg unintentionally. It meant that there was a lot of body roll. The suspension was, I imagine, from some sort of ballpoint clicking pen. And so when I threw it round corners, it tended to loll about like a a boat at sea. For I two, a jelly. two yeah. or three minutes before it <laughs> steadied itself and found its gravity. Um, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Chris. So which one of those vehicles was your favourite? What one inspired the most joy the first time you, you drove it or rode it? It would be a toss-up, really. The Jinling Spy 250 was my first set of wheels that, if I just wanted to, I could get on it, drive around. And I remember being behind a Ferrari... And there was a kid pointing and staring. And I thought, because I was a fan of the Ferrari, that they were pointing and staring at the Ferrari. But when it turned off, the kid was still pointing at me. And that gave me a nice warm feeling to think that it's so unique that a young child was pointing at a fairly cheap quad bike and not a supercar. The most fun, I'd say, was on the Quadzilla, simply because it gives you the exposure of a motorcycle. It gave me the fast acceleration that I was looking for, but it was stable enough, and I spent a fair bit of money on it to really keep it clean, keep it shiny, keep it maintained, and I absolutely loved that, and I was sad to see it go when I got the Matiz. (laughs) <laughs> Were you sad to see it go, or sad to see the Matiz come in, or was it both? Well, there was an overlap period of about seven months where I owned both the Matiz and the Quadzilla, but I knew that the Quadzilla was going to have to go at some point to pay off the bill for the Matiz. So it was Ouch. living on borrowed time, and I certainly thoroughly enjoyed throwing on my helmet, putting on my gloves and just riding that that quad bike around. My sort of history with cars is that's very French. My first car was a Peugeot 106 Zest 3, a 1.5 diesel, no idea on the horsepower, not much. No turbo in the diesel, but honestly it was so economical, it was unreal. Um, I had no complaints about the car, but I don't think a lot of people that their first car have a lot of complaints because they, they haven't been used to anything. Really, it's yeah. the freedom, isn't it, that gives you this? Yeah, it's the freedom. It was great. I bought it for seven hundred and fifty. It had a couple of things go wrong with it, but I had it for about three years and very little really went wrong with it. I loved it. The second car was another Peugeot two hundred six. This one was a two liter HDI D turbo. So this was my first taster. It's not a fast car by any stretch, but it was a lot faster than what I had. So it took a lot of getting used to. To be honest with you, it made me really nervous driving it. 
because it was a lot more power than I've been used to. I went from a car with no turbo to a turbo and then some. Unfortunately for this car, it a lot of things went wrong with it, actually. Mm. Uh, the gearbox fluid was leaking all over the place. I've had the belt snap on a motorway. After the 206, I finally got my taste of what a new car finally felt like. So I got a Citroen C1 pretty much not long after I first started working for old car leasing the first time round. C1 is as basic as it gets. It's really not quick, but it was my first car that was ever new. And I absolutely loved it. You know, it had a, the new car smell that I'd never smelt. So brand new from the dealership. Yeah, it, and I loved it. And to be honest with you, it, it served a purpose because it was extremely economical. Well, it, it was the new factor and mm. I, I really quite liked. So, like, there was no fiddly electronics. It was within warranty and all the rest of it. So, got no, absolutely no complaints. After the C1, I then moved into the Fiesta that I've still got now. Along with the golf, and that's pretty much it. Because I lease, I'm with the car for for three years at a time, so I haven't had that many cars. And there's no particular pattern, but what I tend to have done is power's always gone up with with one car to the other, apart from the C1, I suppose. But I always try to get a different mark, a, a different experience, try something new, and, and try to always get something better. So I always try to set set the benchmark. So as soon as I, I got the Fiesta, I realised, oh, can't really go for a C1 now that I've got the Golf and now I think that you know the Fiesta's a bit of a budget vehicle now I think that's the curse with leasing though you never want to take a step down once you've got something that's uh... yeah it is a genuine dilemma once you're used to something you don't want to let it go so all the cars have always gotten better and better I suppose it's the same for the two of you yeah. you've always upgraded you've never gone sideways I've still always felt sad whenever I got rid of my other cars though yeah I mean my favourite car is probably a toss up between the C1 and probably the 106 106 had that factor of it was my first ever car mm. and that's you know has always got a special place in my heart the C1 was my first ever new car and although the Golf is a really good car I'd gotten used to a certain level at that point and mm. it, it wasn't anything absolutely brand new brand new experience it was or anything a new like that standard wasn't it yeah and, when, and obviously when you work at all car leasing and you see customers cars get delivered and you have a look inside and stuff like that and you get used to it when you start realizing what you could have or what you're missing out on yeah that's our history out the way the last question is, how did you get on with your driving lessons and your test? Did you enjoy your driving lessons? What did you have your driving lessons in? And how many attempts did it take for you to pass your test? So as I mentioned earlier on, I learned to drive in a Mini, although it wasn't the first ever instructor I had. I didn't start properly learning to drive until a couple of months after my first ever lesson, which was in an old, uh, the previous generation Honda Civic. It was a diesel, but I was so small back then, I really couldn't see anything out of the... Uh, windshield is about driving a tank in a way but when I finally started doing lessons properly I ended up having about 40 lessons before I actually got put in for my test it was my theory test that I was more worried for out of the two I actually ended up I passed the theory second time around so the first time around I failed it on the hazard perception part and I actually took my test with my cousin at the time and he failed on the questions part so we failed on sort of the opposite end of things here's a question for you uh, did you enjoy your lessons? Did, did you really look forward to the lessons uh, and the instructor arriving in front of your house? I did actually, yeah, because outside of my lessons, I wasn't insured on anyone's cars or anything like that, and I would never sort of go to car parks and just drive sort of off the record sort of thing. So Yeah, I, I didn't do that either. A lot of my friends did, and they, t- <laughs> they tend to pass a lot sooner than I did. So, um, how many attempts did it take you to pass your test again? 
So two times to pass my theory test and my practical, I passed first time round. Really? Yes. Uh, I took my test at Salford Fire Station, just on the outskirts of Manchester, sort of central Manchester. And there was a lot of roadworks on at the time, actually, as well. So it was a little bit dodgy. It was Manchester Road we were going down. The roadworks at the time, it was actually a 20 zone, but there wasn't much sort of signage around to sort of dictate that. So everyone else was just doing the speed limit. Obviously, if you're out there on a test, you, you know that the new speed limit is now 20. Mm. everyone around you is getting a bit angsty and you know there's always people that don't want to be just below the, you know, the limit they used yeah. to anyway so Bridget how did you get on? My first lesson I think was in my dad's Ford Focus I was just driving through the farmer's fields and I was probably about 12 and he just showed me how to shift gear how to use the clutch how to manage the, the pedals and I sort of grew up bit by bit learning how to shift gears and things like that so my first lesson on the road was fairly fluid I think I was reversing round corners by mm. lesson three or four my first stint of lessons were in and around Salford I took my first two tests at Salford fire station the same as Chris and I failed both of those for various reasons and it was at that point that I decided I need to be driving on roads that I recognised and that I knew fairly well. And Warrington Test Centre had just reopened at that time. So I went back to Warrington. I was in, I think, a Vauxhall Astra petrol. And the guy said, I think you're ready. Just maybe practice one or two things. I told him I'd never done bay parking. So he showed me 10 minutes before my exam. I got uh, bay parking on my test along with turning the road and after doing around 11 points they went to the test centre and they said well done Mr Bolton you've passed but I've given you two minors for your turning the road which was much more than you needed to you weren't using the full width of the road my excuse for that was I didn't drop my wing mirrors and they made me do it where there was nothing but low curbs so I couldn't see them at all and I didn't want to reverse on the curb and fail mm. So I probably left about two foot from each curb, either side of the road, and just decided to go back and forth until I managed to turn around. I think I got about four minors when I did my practical. But my manoeuvre as well was a turn in the road, and I was so happy when they said that, because it had been a fairly easy test up until that point. I mean, they got me to pull up and stop at the side of the road twice, on the same stretch of road, actually. And then we went off to sort of off streets and stuff like that that's where they got to do the turn in the road the road wasn't particularly wide though so it was kind of difficult but the wheels sort of turn in slightly on the mini so it makes it a little bit easier did you enjoy your lessons richard i enjoyed my lessons at the start i started to not enjoy them so much towards the end certainly whilst i was at salford and i was happy to meet an instructor in warrington that was very accommodating and willing to just give me a few lessons allowed me to put in for my test I think a week or two later and they just said let's do an hour before I agreed and so we did. I personally hated my driving lessons I had no interest in driving at all to be honest with you I was pretty bad at it as well I can't remember how many lessons I did but it was way over the top I just I didn't enjoy it. I was extremely nervous. And uh, the one thing I just couldn't wrap my head around was I terrible at multitasking. Doing the clutch, doing the steering, checking the mirrors. I was, no, I can't, can't do that. And uh, yeah, it just dragged on and on and on. And I knew I didn't have a job at the time. I was a student. Even if I passed my test, couldn't buy a car anyway. So what's the point? Mm. I don't know how long you've got, but from when you get the theory test, there was a week left before I had to redo it. 
and I passed my test right at the end. Up until that point, I can't remember exactly, but I failed either three times or four times. I just, I just, I just didn't like driving. Just didn't like driving mm. at all. Which is weird because I really like driving now, but I, I hated my lessons. Maybe it was my instructor, or maybe it was just my attitude at a time when I was a teenager. But I absolutely hated it. Can't be what to take in when you're younger, though. It was the clutch. I, I couldn't wrap my head around coming up into a junction and stopping and then having to go again like in a roundabout. I wasn't qu- very quick, so when there was an opportunity, I was all fingers and thumbs. I couldn't go. Mm. Even setting off and getting the buying point, it was, I was a painful student. I was a painful <laughs> student to have in the car, but I suppose dollar signs in their, in their eyes when they uh, saw me week in, week out, <sighs> being absolutely hopeless, no chance. So that, that is my history with the test. I hated it, but I do genuinely like driving now. I just don't think I was the right age or, or um, maturity for it at mm. that point. Okay, so that wraps up this section, look through our history into cars and driving. I'm going to close this episode off with just a little bit of a quick chat about what we're like on the road. First question for us all is, how would you describe, you know, answer me as honestly as you possibly can, how would you describe a driving style? Chris? Steady, to be honest, because given how, I, I guess I drive the fastest car out of everyone here, but I probably drive the slowest. One, because I'm being cautious with it, especially while the car's kind of new to me anyway, but I'm not particularly... You know, brash when I'm driving. I'm not in a rush. Courteous to say cyclist, etc. Yeah, I'd say just pretty safe, to be honest with you. Although, I feel strange saying that because I've crashed two cars. Have you ever taken the I-30 to its limits or are as close as you felt comfortable doing Not so? really. Not near the car's limits. I think I reached my own limit before the car gets anywhere near it. Which leads me, I suppose, to the second question for you, Chris, specifically. Do you think that the performance is wasted on you if if you're driving conservatively but you've got a performance car? I don't know. I'm not going to get bored anytime soon. And I think I'll only start wanting to change the car when I am sort of more in control. You know, and I, I know its limits and I, I feel comfortable reaching them. But to be honest with you, you can't really take it to the full potential on UK roads anyway. I mean, the top speed something stupidly high. Like mm. over 100 and I think it's 155 electronically limited. I might be wrong. Yep, yeah, yeah. But not that it would ever. Usually, yeah. It would never get close there. Is, you know, <laughs> certainly not with me driving. Anyway, I'd have a lot of taxis that got near 100. In terms of generic handling as well, you do feel the differential working. When you turn quite deep into corners, it does feel like it's on rails. I do really like that aspect, especially around here in the country lanes. Yeah, I suppose it's wasted on me a little bit. But that's the good thing about hot hatches, though. You can enjoy a lot of them within its limit. Yeah, because what I notice, and I'm not saying this is for everyone who owns like a hot hatch or, or more, is I tend to find people with these really performancey sort of cars tend to stick to the limits and drive quite conservatively and it's the people that you know if you look in a fast lane it's the people that don't mm. that tend to do the tailgating and go over the limits and all the rest of it it's the people that don't have performance cars yeah and then well, there you see on lane one or lane two there's a, a golf car humming along at 70 and then you get you know some idiot in a standard car bombing it yeah and it's like is it just the fact that they know that they could is enough for them. I suppose this is another question for you, Chris. Sorry, Chris, we will move on to you. But is it the fact that you know that you've got it and you could use it if you wanted to and is that is that enough? I think that's it. It's there for when you need it. You don't have to be using it 100% of the time. I certainly see my MPG go down quite a lot yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, uh, It's a thirsty car. Richard, what's your driving style like? I'd say my driving style is very courteous. I tend to drive textbook, hands at 10 and 2. <laughs> Always check, check and check again. 
the majority of the time and <laughs> conserving fuel so i don't tend to push the car very hard i don't accelerate too hard most of the time eco warrior <laughs> whenever i the dash cam footage to prove it as well <laughs> yes when, whenever i do that 10 percent of the time decide to unleash a bit of <laughs> driving tension the track tension, yes uh, it tends to be just pulling away at whites before other cars. We often joke here in the office that you win all of the races at the whites that you're the only one competing in. And I've never driven anything that's been blisteringly quick. The quad bikes were very quick to accelerate, but that's power to weight ratios. But the cars that I've driven, they've never had that excitement of power. They've never been fun cars. So... I don't see the point in driving a Renault Clio 1.5 diesel aggressive. Okay, well, here's a question for you then. Is the thought of having maybe a performance car one day, does that get you going? Have you got an interest in having a car with a bit more performance? Or on your shopping list is miles per gallon at the top and performance, well, raw speed, top speed and acceleration at the bottom? For for me, top top speed is something that I don't necessarily think that I would ever use. My my dream, my goal, if you like, in the short term, is to own a Lotus Elise. That's a car that's very lightweight. The engine's fairly small, but because of the power to weight ratio, the acceleration's very quick. And acceleration is what I get excited about. Certainly, I'd enjoy driving that car. The way that I see it with my MPG and my my fuel-saving goals is the less fuel I spend in a car like the Clio, like the Matiz, is a pound or ten pounds closer to my goal of owning something that I would want to put premium fuel in. Pretty good good way to look at it, there. Yeah, Mm. I mean. My driving style is probably more similar to... Well, actually, it's a, it's a bit of both of you, really. I'm, I'm quite a conservative driver. I enjoy the journey more than I enjoy connecting with the vehicle. I'll drive a 70. I won't often go into the fast lane or lane three, whatever you want to call it. And I'll just tend to listen to a podcast most of the time. So I, I try to make the most of my journey. I don't go out of my way to get the miles per gallon down, but I definitely don't go out of my way to bomb it home. Like, I, I'm not interested in shaving one to five minutes from my journey. Nothing antisocial now. I'd rather spend an extra five minutes on the journey without getting stressed about it and stuff like that. So I'll drive at the limit, carefully. I'm quite stress-free. I enjoy being just being comfortable. Sometimes too comfortable. I find myself going a 71 minute, getting a little bit too comfortable. And before I know it, I'm down to 60 and I'm like causing a bit of a jam behind me. From time to time, though, if it's a particularly long journey or just come out of a particularly bad spot of traffic, that's when I may do uh, go in the fast lane for a little bit just to get rid of the tension, then go back in. But overall, I'd say I'm quite courteous, mm. especially because my son was born. But I probably drove quite a bit differently before that point. And maybe a lot of parents who who are listening to this podcast may understand, did your driving style change after having a child? You know, now that you've got something to lose and you don't want to die. (laughs) Did you change? I certainly did. That's how I'd describe my driving style. My last question here is, what car are you loving right now? What sort of manufacturer or, or model do you think have really hit the mark 
Not necessarily performance-wise, because obviously we haven't test-driven every single car on the planet. What I mean is, like, aesthetically, which car have you, have you seen on the roads lately and thought, you know what, that brand's really hit the mark with that? I may not get it, but I like seeing it. One of my favourites is actually the new Suzuki Jimny. Right, not something okay. you'd normally hear. But considering, if you compare it to the old model, it's miles better. But still a little bit uninspiring on the inside. But, you know, the new shape, a little bit boxy, kind of... Bit of a risk from Suzuki, because uh, the Jimny's, I think a lot of people would call that an iconic car. A bit like the Fiat 500 or the Jeep Wrangler. Mm. Like, it's been that way for so long, they're a bit afraid to change it. But Suzuki have... I think the Jimny had a bit of a cult following anyway, to be honest with you. And it's a very capable off-roader. Although the colours you can get this new one in really stand out. And I don't know if that's what's distracting me from the otherwise sort of square shape of it. I think the poster boy colour for that is that, that lime green colour. And I think uh, the marketing spiel behind it was hey, it'll stand out on building sites, things like that. All right, so um, would you have one? It's, it's so cheap that, yeah, probably we would, to be honest with you, yeah. All right. I wouldn't have a top-of-the-range one, because you know, I'm not made of money, nor would I want to spend <laughs> that much on a Jimny, but... Yeah. Richard? I think the new Mazda MX-5, it's been out now for about two years, and I think the way that Mazda's restyled that car and brought it into the sort of modern era, they've gone back for clean-cut lines on the front and on the back. It remains low and fairly narrow to the ground, narrow on the road, and it's been a long-running bestseller for its category it's for, for its years. 30th anniversary, hasn't it? Yeah. Yes, there was that, that special edition that recently was announced and released, and I think that the Mazda MX-5 has got a nice new interior. They look comfy, they definitely remain one of the best cars to drive on a Sunday, and I think... You don't often get the chance to take the roof off and just enjoy a car. And I think the Mazda MX-5 would give me that experience. It's definitely one of those cars you can enjoy within its limits as well. Certainly within the speed limit. I mean, rear-wheel drive, you know, front engine. It's more made to be a great handler rather than go not to 60 particularly fast. But personally, I think I'd have one as well. I think the MX-5, they can't really do any wrong with it at this point. Because it's just timeless at this point. I think it's the world's best-selling sports car, and it's definitely for the reason. It'd be quite interesting to find out how many people have an MX-5 as a main car and not a sort of a weekend one. Like, how many people just do everything in their MX-5? Mm. Oh, the older used ones you can get for sort of under three grand yeah, now. I've got, I've got, I do have a lot of time for the MX-5. I think every generation, I think they've, they've pretty much kept within trend and quite often set the trend. To finish off, mine is the Alpha Julia. Um, it's not brand new, but what I like about it is it's entered a pretty saturated, would you call it, market that has a lot of cars that are made for executive style people and they look executive. And what I like about the Julia is it doesn't look executive, it looks really sporty, really beefy. Yeah. Um, the only thing that makes it look similar to the other Alpha range is the front grille. But it's not got that sort of Russian doll effect like a lot of German cars do. I don't see many on the road. But when I do, I do, you know, to myself, I, I nod to the driver in, in approval. Just because it's, it's something different. You know, Alpha's a luxury brand, so not everyone has one for, for that reason. But it's it's refreshing to see something different. And Julia, Julia's not the rarest of cars by any stretch. But you don't see them often. Well, you could go through all week without seeing one. Mm. But I like the people who have thought, you know what, I want this sort of car, but I don't want to get what everyone else has got. Similarly... 
And if I had a second place, it would be a bit like the Kia Stinger, who have tried something different to compete with the Germans with a sort of like executive size sport back. And I like the brands who try something different, even if it doesn't always work, do admire the ones that try something different with with the aesthetic of their cars. I do like the Stinger. Sounds pretty nice as well with the uh, V6. I've seen a couple in a, in the red. It's Kia Stinger red for, for me <laughs> because the, the marketing materials have that red mm. and I've only seen it in that colour. But I suppose the choices that we've got, apart from maybe the MX-5, they're not mainstream, are they? And that's what you get on the roads these days is there's nothing wrong with it, but it's always sort of the same. Yeah, car, same. cars are popular with a reason, but it's just refreshing for certainly for us yeah. just to see those uh, hidden gems. Be interested to possibly run a poll one day on people that drive these sort of niche, non-mainstream cars. Underdogs, I reckon. Yeah. Oh, well, I wrote a blog, didn't I? Fringe cars that everyone should check out, so... If I was to say the word crossover to someone, they think Kashkai, a Sportage or something like that. But then, Jimmy? I did actually run a Facebook poll not too long ago for our Facebook followers. And I asked them, would you rather have an Alfa Romeo Giulia or the new BMW 3 Series? The 3 Series did win, but it was quite a close vote. I think the Alfa had 47% of the votes. Yeah. The 3 Series had a 50 Well, I suppose it's like when given the choice, half of the people would get it. Mm. But I suppose because it's not that well known, when it comes down to actually, right, I need to go to the dealership to take test drive some cars, that's when these sort of fringe brands, because they're maybe not overly aggressive with their marketing, there's no better marketing than seeing people drive the cars. Mm. So when people are thinking of sort of like an executive size saloon and they are on the most when they look around, yeah, there's a 3 Series, there's an A4 and stuff like that. So when it comes to making the decision what car am I going to get next, they're in your head, aren't they? Mm. Whereas because the Julia is quite rare, a lot of people may not have thought about it until someone's like, oh, what about this? Again, going back to, you know, the i30N, you don't see many about. So when they're thinking, oh, I fancy a hot hatch, you know, I'll go Volkswagen, look at the UK. I'll go Ford, look at the UK, look at some STs. If more and more people bought the i30, it would be like a snowball effect. The more they would sell, the more they would be on the roads. But it's quite difficult to get these sort of cars in front of people. But I suppose that's what these niche brands, if they're listening to the podcast, need to do. I suppose they want to get cars on the road. This is the format. This is how they do it. I think that's pretty much that section done and dusted. Let's move on to the last section. So this is now a regular feature that we're going to put in at the end of every podcast episode. All we're going to do is just tell our listeners of the good deals that we've got on right now. And just as a bit of a disclaimer, please check the date of the podcast as these deals are obviously time sensitive. So if you're listening to a really old podcast, these deals are probably gone. So just be aware of that. So Chris, what kind of deals have we got for us this week? Okay, so this week we've seen a few offers arrive on some fairly sporty models. First off is the Volkswagen Polo GTI, which can be yours from around £250 a month with a £750 upfront payment. That's over four years with an annual mileage of 10000 Though, if you prefer to pay more upfront and have a lower monthly payment, if you were to pay £2,000 upfront, the monthly price would come down to about £222 a month. Something to consider, though, is that most German cars have a three-year warranty. If you prefer to be on the safer side and lease over three years, the monthly price 
only increases by about £10 a month on the same terms. Personally, I think the new Polo GTR is a bit of a hidden gem. The pre-current model had a 1.8 litre engine, but this current gen model now has a slightly detuned version of the current Golf GTI engine, which is 2 litre petrol, so it's by no means slow. Next up is the Mercedes C-Class Coupe. Uh, there's quite a few different models available as part of the offer, but the majority of them are the C200 AMG line models. With a lower deposit over three years, it costs you just shy of £370 a month. That's with an upfront payment of £1,108. But same as before, if you prefer a higher deposit and lower monthly payments, if you were to pay £3,585 upfront, it'd make the monthly payment £299.99. And finally, there's the new Kia Pro C GT line. That's the shooting brake model, which comes with quite a lot of kit as standard, like heated seats, heated steering wheel, reversing camera, sat nav, etc. On a lower initial payment of £783 over three years, Pro C will cost £261 a month. Same again with a higher upfront payment, it'd be £2,534 upfront and £211 per month. Links to all the deals I've mentioned will be in the show notes if you want to check them out for yourself and have a play around with the different terms. Back over to you, Ronnie. Right, well, that's the end of the episode. Thanks very much for everyone who's listened. Please subscribe and uh, give us some feedback on what you think of the episode and any ideas of what we should do in the future. So thanks again for listening and we look forward to, to having you again.